Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning. Today is the day. It's the 14th of November. It's Thursday. I know I had Tasty Tuesday and then I had Wisdom Wednesday or Wednesday Wisdom. So I need a Thursday thing. How about Thoughtful Thursday? We'll have I was thoughtful just Thursday about to today. say that. Oh, you were? Yeah. Is is that? Okay. So it's probably a thing. Hashtag Thoughtful Thursday. I'll have to check that out. Um, Let us indeed set our thoughts uh, unto the Lord and the things of the Lord Today, uh, yesterday, I, I think I have to start with impeachment because it is what is con- it is what is consuming the conversation culturally. Um, but let me just assure you, I'm going to move on from this fairly quickly this morning. Yesterday does mark a historic day in our representative constitutional democracy known as the United States of America and the U.S. Congress in its role of oversight of the executive branch began public hearings in the impeachment investigation of the president of the United States, Donald Trump. Um, If you're not aware of that, then my guess is your life is full of much more interesting matters to you personally than that which is, frankly, consuming the media wall to wall. Every network covered the hearings wall to wall yesterday. They're going to do so again today. They're going to do so again tomorrow. Um, And if their viewership numbers hold up and if advertisers can stand it, My guess is they are going to continue to broadcast these hearings until they are over, which would be, you know, until the House starts its formal deliberations uh, without public testimony. Uh, One of the concerns raised yesterday, lots of senators not even watching, not even paying attention to what is happening uh, in in these open hearings. Um, And remember, this is kind of like the trial phase. So this is when technically the evidence is presented. The Senate has a very, very different experience and role um, when it when if and when it moves to them after a House vote. So um, I think it could be weeks. Will the American public watch for weeks? Will you watch for weeks? Will I watch for weeks? Um, I kind of doubt that Uh, over Thanksgiving. And as there are fewer and fewer shopping days until Christmas, I I think people are not going to watch. We might half listen. We might overhear. We might listen to a few tidbits here and there of what other people are saying about it. But there are actually few things that Americans will sit down and watch together and then talk about. And so I want you to think for a moment or consider for a moment. Um, what's the last thing that you actually like sat down and watched and then talked with other people about? So, Paul Perot, since I have you right now, what's the last thing you sat down with a group of people, not you by yourself, not you by yourself with, you know, your Twitter machine in your hand, but you just you you sat down with a group of people and you watched something and then you talked about it boy a long time i mean i'm if you go past super bowls and such i i don't know i really don't so the super bowl so the super bowl was the only thing on my list 
<laughs> well, there's the World Series, but that was a while back. I mean, for me, for the Minnesota Twins, you know, Well, 91. right, because you only watch if you're interested. Exactly. You only watch if, like, your team is playing. Well, see, there you go. Okay, so a lot of people are not watching the Super Bowl because they don't have a team as fantastic as yours, right? So they don't, they're not in it. As often. I'm, I'm um, a Viking fan. What was the last uh, time we were in the Super Bowl? Come on. I have on. no idea. I have no idea. I'm just <laughs> speaking totally outside of my... Okay, so the finale of a big series like Game of Thrones, apparently like some something like 10% of the American population actually did watch that together. But the whole concept of watching something together has been radically transformed. Um, Americans watch things, quote unquote, together now, but they're not in the same room. They're just on the same social media platform discussing it. And so I just want folks to kind of think through how much our consumption of media has changed since the last time America had an impeachment inquiry. And so we would be talking here about the Clinton era. We'd be talking here about the 1990s. We'd be talking here about pre-smartphones. Uh, Actually, really basically at the advent of the Internet, what we had was broadcast television. And people sat together and watched and then discussed what was happening? That is not taking place today in, in pretty much anywhere outside of the Beltway in Washington. So I have three quick, uh, three quick observations, and then we're going to move on from this to other conversations today. You can text me, really, throughout the impeachment proceedings. Feel free to text me at 877-933-2484 about your level of interest, if you think I'm talking about it too much or not enough. Today is just one day, and I am going to spend two minutes on it today, and then we are moving on. So here's the big three questions as I see them. Number one, will you watch with a sufficiently open mind to discover the truth, whatever the truth is? Or have you already decided the outcome is baked in one way or the other? Number two, for those who do watch with an open mind, Will sufficiently clear evidence be presented by credible nonpartisan witnesses testifying on behalf of the common good to convince the viewing public that a high crime or misdemeanor worthy of removal from office has been committed by the president of the United States? And number three, even if the Democrat-dominated House votes to impeach the president, will public opinion shift significantly or sufficiently enough that the Republican majority in the Senate would in fact vote by a two-thirds majority to remove the president? My take? After just listening yesterday and reading the feedback on social media, the answer to all three of those questions is no. No. So how much time do we devote to it here? That is ultimately the question I have to answer as your host of Mornings with Carmen. Um, and so give me your feedback, 877-933-2484. Text me your level of interest in the impeachment proceedings if you want me uh, to spend more or less time on it. We will touch on it from time to time throughout the process uh, as it unfolds. But today, I said everything I'm going to say about this topic. We are moving on. Uh, the Democratic field continues to grow. The entrance of uh, New York City's former mayor, Bill de Blasio, and an announcement yesterday from former Massachusetts customer, uh, customer, Governor Duval Patrick. He intends to announce that he is running. Let me just say this. In my view, when Duval Patrick gets into the race, the race instantly becomes uh, much different and much more interesting. He becomes, in my view, the most credible candidate upon entering the race. Uh, next up, Ben Johnson's going to be here. He and I are going to talk about one particular Democratic candidate named Pete Buttigieg, who is now leading the Democratic race in Iowa, up 14 points since August. Uh, and Buttigieg wants to build a bridge to the religious right. Can he do it? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Right, given by God. 
right, joining me now, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find uh, what much of what he is writing and working on at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. And we are going to talk about a piece that he posted there yesterday in just a minute. Um, ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Welcome back to you. Thank you. Thank you. I know. Thank you. So um, uh, I'm not going to ask you if you dutifully watched the impeachment hearings because I know you did in preparation to discuss them today, but we are not going to discuss them today. So we're going to move on, if that's OK, um, because there's a limited amount of time and people's interest level will either still be there next week or it won't. And then we can talk. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. And uh, I yeah. just wish that I had the two hours back. <laughs> so sorry. No, All right. Fine. So Pete, Pete Buttigieg. Um, he is now, um, according to a Monmouth University poll, Pete Buttigieg is now leading the Democratic race in Iowa for the first time up 14 points since August. He also, this is an interesting piece in the Washington Post, he wants to build a bridge to the religious right. Um, but there's some tension there, and there's some tension in his own, um, what I will describe as uh, extended family related to this. So talk a little bit about Pete Buttigieg and the challenges that he faces in his desire to build a bridge to the religious right. Well, the the first uh, challenge that uh, Pete Buttigieg presents, uh, he's perhaps the uh, candidate who speaks the most clearly about his faith. Uh, Joe Biden has has uh, tremendous Catholic faith, and he speaks about it quite a bit. In fact, it's gotten him into trouble in in the past, uh, where he's he's made references or quoted Catholic hymns. Uh, when uh, Frank Luntz shows the the reaction to that, it's generally negative. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has had a little bit of a different vibe because instead of simply citing his faith. He has uh, used his faith, or we might even say weaponized his faith, in in uh, in charge of some of his issues. Uh, so particularly, he's, he's had a continued attack against Mike Pence and uh, other people, although it seems to be a rather one-sided war. Pence apparently is never really engaged. But uh, he has said that uh, anyone who's opposed to gay marriage uh, is, is persecuting him in some way. Uh, he has said that anyone who opposes raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is uh, is mocking God, uh, raising the minimum wage uh, law to the issue of uh, the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ in terms of your walk with Jesus. And uh, his biggest issue is that he's continually attacking those to whom he claims that he wants to build a bridge. You can either build a bridge of equals it, that unites two equals across the various things that divide them, or you can continue to remind them how they they are divided and that uh, there should be a continual division between them. Uh, he at one time says that uh, religion should not be used as a cudgel, and yet, uh, frankly, from, from my perspective, he uses it rather uh, clearly uh, to say that uh, those who do not agree with him or the position of the, re the religious left are guilty of heresy. And that's strong language. I mean, well, right? It, I mean, it truly is. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think that uh, as in general, uh, Christians have a problem excommunicating one another far too frequently, mm. uh, whether whether it's over positions on the end times, which was a big issue when when I was uh, coming into the faith, or whether it's positions on different political issues or, or things that are uh, fairly momentary and, and passing. These are not the deep issues of the faith, belief in Christ, belief in the, the accuracy of the scriptures, belief in the resurrection, uh, the Nicene Creed. These are things that we actually believe in, and that's what it, it means to truly walk with Christ and believe in him. Uh, we can we can disagree on certain prudential issues, and then there are certain issues that are moral and that are part of the moral teaching that have been handed down that, uh, quite candidly, uh, Buddha Judge finds himself on the other side of, and yet he has is, he is used the scriptures as a defense 
and a way of bashing those who disagree with him. And and perhaps it's it's um, uh, coming out of a place of pain from some reaction he's had in the past. But uh, whatever it is, if he wants to build a bridge and he truly wants to link hands with us, uh, I have no problem with with uh, uh, living peacefully with everyone that we can as much as we as much as humanly possible uh, to do. But uh, we cannot agree with uh, with those who would violate the moral teachings of the scriptures. He's also having uh, a particular challenge with African-Americans. And I um, I I might distill this down a little bit differently than those in the secular media would. Um, what I see, Ben, in terms of Pete Buttigieg's challenge with African-Americans is that he has an Imago Dei problem already. He already does not want to submit in his own personal life to the reality of a creator God who makes people, you know, for on purpose and for a purpose in his own image as male and female. And so it's really hard for him to operate out of a theology that says uh, red, yellow, black and white are all precious in God's sight, equally created in God's image and standing equally, you know, not only at creation, but at the foot of the cross and in the kingdom. Um, I think his African-American problem is also a worldview religion problem. Well, African Americans definitely have the highest belief of God of in God of any group of Americans. They are the most likely to pray every day, to say that religion is very important to them, and to say that they go to church at least once a week. Forty-seven percent of uh, all African Americans say they go to church at least once. Many of them more often than that, according to a recent Pew poll. So, uh, there's no question they are an incredibly religious demographic. And uh, they are also, uh, perhaps not unrelated to that, have uh, the lowest support of gay marriage of any demographic uh, in the United States. So uh, there's certainly a a question there. I would say that there's another issue as well from an African-American perspective, and uh, several several civil rights leaders and uh, even former congressmen uh, have spoken about this, Uh, namely that there's been a a campaign to present uh, uh, homosexuals as though they had suffered the same way that African-Americans have suffered in this country. Uh, African-Americans were lynched. They were systematically excluded for hundreds of years, enslaved. Uh, and this, this, of course, has gone on for centuries. Uh, there is no comparable point of systematic exclusion of any other group in American history, with the possible exception of American Indian tribes. So uh, I think that they, they also find some, some level of, um, of engagement with that aspect of his candidacy as well. Mm. Okay, um, up next, we have to take a brief break, but up next, I want to talk with you about um, a quote-unquote dead-end job that actually has delivered dozens of people from homelessness. So that is Ben Johnson's latest piece at the Acton blog. You can find it at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. We're going to talk about dead-end jobs or supposedly dead-end jobs and the way people can actually be lifted up out of homelessness and poverty by the dignity of work. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Homelessness is a real issue uh, in America today, and when we talk about the Christian worldview, we we really cannot escape a conversation about the dignity of work, and um, and we cannot escape a conversation about um, the dignity of making your own living, in as opposed to someone just giving you a hand out that they then hope turns into a hand up. So Ben Johnson is here. He has a piece posted at. Uh, the Acton Institute's blog, which you can find at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, that I'm going to describe as uh, a piece about the dignity of work and the way that it needs to be redeemed in our culture today. Um, Tell us this story, Ben. 
Well, this is one of the most uplifting stories that I've heard in a very long time. It begins with a woman named Veronica Scott, who uh, says that she grew up in a, a household filled with addiction, that uh, sometimes they had homelessness and she was raised in shelters. And uh, she was looked down upon as worthless. She ended up getting a scholarship to a design college in Detroit. And her her um, project was to come up with something that, quote, meets a real need. And so she came up with this fascinating coat that actually ends up unfolding and turning into a sleeping bag so that you can sleep in sub-zero temperatures in Michigan winters uh, for the 200,000 Americans who sleep on the streets uh, every night. So uh, that in itself was fairly miraculous to me. But then she decided to go one step farther. After she graduated, she ended up creating a business called the Empowerment Plan, where she hired homeless people to make these. And some of the people that uh, she'd encountered in uh, in the homeless shelters told her, there's no point in doing this. Uh, you'd be lucky if a homeless person could make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, let alone a coat, one of them said to her point blank. Uh, as they say, nevertheless, she persisted. She hired homeless people from the shelters. She brings them in, and uh, she started out, she said, with three employees in a utility closet. But it's a unique business plan. Not only do they make these coats and, and uh, sell them around the world, uh, to shelters so they can give them to homeless people who are on the street. But in addition to that, uh, they spend about 60% of their paid workday working, and then the, the remainder of it, inside the workplace, they have a classroom, they have GED classes so that they can get a, a GED, and uh, that gives them a, a, a little bit of a, a step toward getting a job. They have financial literacy classes, domestic violence interventions. Everything is specifically individualized for the employees who are there and their needs to move them out of homeless shelters and into a home. She's dealt with about 60 to 80 people who have gone through the program from homeless shelters. None of them have gone back into homelessness as a result of this. And in addition to that, they've had about 35, 45,000 coats that have gone all over the United States, all 50 states, and 18 countries around the world. So what began as a product to try and help homeless people became uh, a way of not only giving them something, but uh, but of giving them a hand up and giving them the first step on the rung of a ladder to independence and self-reliance and using their God-given talents to, to take care of themselves and their families. So um, empower, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to read it on here, empowermentproject.com is the website directly for, um, for, her, for her project. Um, talk about, Ben, why this matters, because you actually lay out in your piece, um, you know, sort of like how this works, how having a job moves a person um, to a very, very different place in in their life experience and in our culture together. Well, she said that uh, the epiphany came after she started giving these coats out on the streets. A lady in a homeless shelter turned to her and basically said, this isn't helping me. This is like a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. She said she turned to her and said, I don't need a coat. I need a job. Mm -hmm. And what she really needed was a job in order to become self-reliant so she could get her home uh, and uh, and she could take care of herself. Uh, when when you give someone something, that's a temporary holdover or a stopgap measure. But the real goal is to make them self-sufficient so that they are able to use their talents to serve others in, within the economy, to to care for those of their own household, and also 
so that they are no longer reliant. In fact, if they have extra leftover, they can begin giving to charity. So uh, an entry-level job is absolutely vital, but without a, a high school uh, diploma, without a, a fixed address to put down on an application, it's almost impossible to get hired, and it's even harder if you have no work experience. So she's giving them the first step on the on the rung of their career ladder, and uh, they end up moving on from there to go into uh, more uh, more permanent and perhaps even better paying jobs as things go on. But uh, this gives them a chance to take care of themselves, to provide for themselves, and to feel a, a real sense of accomplishment. Uh, Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute has studied happiness in depth, and there are multiple psychological studies which show the real key to genuine happiness is earned success, which is not that you get a participation trophy, not that people pat you on the back for nothing, but that you actually earn the accolades that you were you were receiving. And a job is integral to that. It's a part of your identity. Uh, it's also a sense that you are capable of something. Someone told me a story once of a man who had a job as a janitor, and someone praised him for the way that he swept the floor. And he said, he turned around and tears were flooding down the man's eyes, all the way down his cheeks. He said, no one has ever told me I could do anything before. So this is showing them the dignity, the ability, the God-given talents that they have, even as something as simple as sweeping the floor. Martin Luther King Jr. always said, if you're called to be a street sweeper, sweep the streets as though so that the angels in heaven will look down and say, here is a street sweeper who did his job well. Mm. I, I appreciate the list um, that you provide in this piece as well. True charity consists of jobs, not handouts. Entry-level jobs are vital. Personal relationships trump impersonal governmental policies. Every job is a self-improvement opportunity, and capital empowers the poor. For folks uh, who want to read it, let me encourage you to go to Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. The piece is The Dead End Job that has delivered dozens from homelessness. The author is Ben Johnson. Thank you again, my friend, for being with us today. Thank you, my friend. God bless. We'll talk to you next week. We'll be right back. Okay, so we talked on Tuesday about having a Tasty Tuesday, and we talked about tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, uh, and that implies that we know what good tastes like. So let me ask you, what does good taste like? What does good taste like to you, and how are you cultivating your appetite for that which is genuinely good, beautiful, and true, these transcendental virtues of the living God? I think that most of us are... Uh, ordinarily sort of like seeking to be satiated and and we have kind of perverted appetites we have allowed our appetites to be uh for that which is you know salty or zesty or uh, sappy sweet or maybe just flat out fattening and so i'm going to talk with karen swallow prior she is a humanities professor and she's an author we're going to talk about how do we actually cultivate a taste a desire an appetite for that which is genuinely good, in order that we might taste and see that the Lord is good and actually know what that is. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever set up a domino chain? There's such a satisfaction when the first domino falls and the rest go down really fast, one after another, with a click, click, click. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, the domino effect can apply to a lot of things, like money and finances. One small, healthful step can lead to another. For example, if you start being more thoughtful about your spending, 
it may lead to more saving. And if you have more savings, you'll have a better idea of how much is enough for you and your family, which can then lead to a full life of abundance and sharing with others. You know, God asks you to be a good steward of what he has given you and to be faithful with the small things as well as the big stuff. So start somewhere, even if it's small, and then let the dominoes fall into place. Being wise with money can help you live a life of confidence, contentment, and generosity. So Karen Swallow Pryor is a reader, a writer, a professor. Um, she is a professor of English at Liberty University, but she is making a, a transition in terms of academic institutions where she's going to be serving. We're going to invite her to tell us about that. She frequently writes on the subject of literature, culture, ethics, and ideas. She writes all over the uh, all over the place, which is kind of a fun way of saying that people like to read what she's writing. Otherwise, uh, it wouldn't be out there for us to consume. On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Literature is um, her latest book, but we certainly always look forward to the next one. Karen, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. It's good to be with you. So let's start with um, where you're headed next and when that's going to happen. Well, when I finish my 21st year at Liberty University uh, at the end of this academic year, I will start next fall at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. All right. And I am, we are, we will follow you there and we will um, continue to call upon you. Um, You will have a colleague there, Bruce Ashford, who I know you already know, but we like to talk to him already. And so, um, looking, look, looking forward to uh, the opportunities that God is setting before you and how you will uh, continue to teach and serve all of us in the midst of that. I'd like to talk with you today about um, how we actually cultivate an appetite for that which is good, beautiful, and true. You write around this subject a lot, and the jumping off point here um, is a piece uh, reflecting on, you know, like good movies, like what is art or what is good art. So I'm just going to let you pick it up from there and sort of tell us what the problem is, and then uh, we can talk about the solution. Well, this the, this article that came out uh, a week or so ago um, was an opinion essay by the great filmmaker Martin Scorsese. Um, I've seen it uh, praised and and critiqued all around my social media. Um, and the gist, he's basically in this, this essay pointing out the difference between movies as entertainment and cinema as an art. Um, and I think, you know, some people and the target for this or the, the object of this distinction is the, the Marvel film series. Um, and you know, of course they're very, very popular and people are talking about them, a lot, but even to say that's an understatement. Um, and so he's just really pointing out the difference between entertainment and art. And I think some people feel insulted and, and defensive about their beloved Marvel universe. Um, but it is an important distinction for us to make. I don't think Scorsese is saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with these films, but he's concerned that we're losing the distinction between entertainment and great art. And of course there are, you know, that's what cinema is that he's using that term that way. Um, and we could, uh, we could take 
what he says here and apply it to so many things. I mean, this is something that Neil Postman talked about um, 40 years ago when he wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death and talked about how television, he didn't think there was anything necessarily wrong with television as entertainment, but how television as entertainment would change our thinking such that we would demand everything to be entertaining. Um, and lo and behold, I think his, his prophecy became true. Yeah, I think we have arrived uh, at the point where we expect even the most serious of events to be covered by comedians in the hallway of the Capitol. Like we we have arrived at desiring that everything be reduced to entertainment. So let's talk about what uh, let's let's flip the script here and let's actually teach you because you can do this and I cannot. Um, What is art and then what is good art and how do I know what is good? Well, Carmen, first of all, I want to say that I teach an entire graduate course on this topic. So Fantastic. Let, let's, try, let's try to boil this down to a few minutes this morning. Um, it's a, those are big questions, big questions, but they are important questions. And even though we won't come anywhere close to answering them today, I think framing them the right way is a big step forward. And, you, and you've just done that. I mean, it's most and this these are the two questions people often get confused is the question, what is art and what is good art? Because they are not the same question. So art at a, art is basically anything human made. Art is the, or is the root word of the word artificial. Uh, we also get artifact and artifice and a lot of other words from it. So art is the opposite of nature. Now, nature is what God made. Art is what human beings make. Even, even tools, um, you know, can be... A, an art of mankind um, in, a, in its very broad sense. Then if we think of art as something that we make to be beautiful, um, to, be, to, to look at, which is the more common understanding of art, you know, when a, when a five-year-old brings home a finger painting from a kindergarten class, that is a work of art that the kindergartner has done and that should be displayed on the refrigerator or wherever. Um, it is a work of, of creativity. Um, now, that does not mean it's good art, <laughs> uh, just as, you know, something hanging at the Museum of Modern Art doesn't have to be good art just because someone made it. Um, but there are lots of lots of uh, things that go into answering the question about what is good art. And that's what my whole my my course is about. But I think those are the basic things to understand that art is something that someone made um, and to be creative and that does not mean it was good. And also if we don't understand it or we don't understand why other people think it's good, that does not mean it's not good it, because art, you know, art, it's not entirely subjective. There are actually objective qualities of art that determine its goodness. And a lot of us don't know what they are, including myself. I'm not an expert. So I've heard, um, I've heard, one person describe uh, the the concept or issue of alignment. If something if if something that a person creates that a human creates, um, which is art by that very definition, that it's made by a human being, if it is aligned with that which God has um, revealed to be transcendentally good, beautiful, and true, so aligned with all of those, then we can say that it's objectively good. And apart from that, we cannot say that it's objectively good 
because we made it and we can't be the arbiters of goodness, beauty or truth. Does that does that sound close to right to you? That is exactly right. I would say the the tricky part comes <laughs> that we argue all the time and cannot see always what truth what what God's truth goodness and beauty look like. I mean, even mm. just in terms of doctrinal debates, so which would be truth. Twitter is filled with arguments every day about how to apply the truth of God's word. Um, and so, but we should aspire to discover that so that it's an ongoing and noble and worthy um, pursuit. That That's what we're here for, I think, is to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful, and to figure out what they are and to, to love them uh, because of who uh, the, who their source is. Um, so no, I think that alignment is exactly right, but, but it, it, it's not as simple as that because, um, because something can be aligned with what is true and good and beautiful, but we don't see it. We don't recognize mm-hmm. it. We don't know how, or, or our perception is distorted. So, and, and I think that that distortion comes because our appetites have been perverted over time because we have not consumed the right thing. So when we come back, let's talk about, um, resurrecting, redeeming, or reinvesting in the humanities. I would love to talk with you about how uh, the humanities are not pointless, but in fact, um, you know, they are, they sort of are the point. So that conversation up next with uh, Professor Karen Swallow Pryor. You can find her at Karen Swallow Pryor uh, dot com. Dot, am I right? That's right. I, I'm asking that as a question. Yes. Okay. Karen com. She and I will be right back. So we tend to uh, like and cultivate an appetite for that which we consume and that which we consume over and over and over again, um, our taste buds then become accustomed to. So we're not just talking here about physical taste. We're also talking about that for which we develop a taste spiritually, intellectually, in terms of conversation, even the words we use. Karen Swallow Pryor is helping those who are paying attention cultivate an appetite for the humanities, for that which is good, beautiful, and true, intrinsically so. And so, Karen, again, thank you for being with us today. Let's pivot to a conversation about the humanities. And first of all, I'd love for you to just start with a definition of that term, because I think that among a lot of conservatives and Christians in particular, the humanities have been somehow degraded into humanism versus what they really are. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the, this is the, my definition that I draw etymologically just because that's what makes sense to me is, is the, the humanities are just as art is the, as we talked about in the previous segment, is something that's not natural, something that's human-made, an act of human creativity or artificial in its most basic um, understanding. The humanities are, are is the study of the things that make us human, human effort, human creativity, human thought. Um, so that includes English and philosophy and history. Um, we also get the word humane from the same word um, because it's the things that that makes us human, um, the things that get at, get the things of, of our soul. I mean, this word goes back into antiquity when people actually believed in in the soul. Um, so that's where the word humanities comes from, um, and they they are on they are in a decline. Um, 
of course, we in the humanities are often say this because we do see the popularity of the humanities in, in college study kind of uh, peak and valley. Um, but I read um, in the past couple of weeks, I read a very alarming um, piece in the Washington Post uh, that gave some statistics that actually since the recession of 2008, English majors alone are down over 25% um, in colleges. Um, and this uh, this opinion piece was actually, uh, or this article was reporting on on economists who are saying that that from an economical point of view, what we need for a strong economy are good storytellers, and those are the the English majors and other humanities majors. So we re- really can't disconnect the humanities from the other parts of our culture. economics, politics, and so forth. And and we need the humanities to enrich and uh, make those more robust. According to this economist, 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 I can, I can say it, economist, and I believe he's right. Well, first I of all, English, not I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that from time to time you trip over a word because um, anytime that I'm engaging with you, with you, or I know that you are in the conversation I actually think about my sentence structure and my grammar, and then I'm, like, horrified that I have ended a sentence with the kind of word I'm not supposed to end a sentence with because I am not a grammarian That's not even at a all. rule, so don't worry it's about not, that. It's <laughs> no, not? It's not. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, that's, I feel that's, so liberated. <laughs> that, that's just an old a carryover from, when, from Latin and Greek, and it doesn't apply to English, but in the 18th century, some of the uh, – Classicists try to make it work in English, and it doesn't. <laughs> oh, so I um I I commit all kinds of of fouls that you have me mindful of. I just think that you should know that I use commas in very inappropriate ways, and I but see you wouldn't know that because it's this is a spoken word program and not a written word program. Thank there you God. go. So there you go. So um, Karen, what is um when we think about the humanities? If somebody is is listening right now and they're saying. I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, what is she suggesting that I read instead of what I'm reading? Where Where is a starting point for a person to just begin tipping, uh, dipping their toe into what we are talking about in terms of the cultivation of different appetites, the changing of our taste, <clears throat> excuse me, for that which we are reading or consuming? Well, again, just to go back to the earlier um, segment that we had when we start, first started talk, talking about this subject, um, we talked about Martin Scorsese's opinion piece about the difference between cinema as art and film as entertainment. Uh, we have to realize that reading good literature or appreciating good art is not entertainment. You know, it can it can be pleasurable. I I enjoy it a great deal, but it is the kind of it's not something that comes naturally to us. So we actually have to cultivate a taste. We have to exercise patience and diligence and focus and attention. So we have to realize that it does take some effort to develop that taste. So when we, you know, if we go to an art museum or we go uh, to a symphony or we pick up a classic novel, we need to realize that it's going to demand something of us, um, some effort, maybe a little knowledge, maybe a little Googling to find out, you know, some, some information that can help us appreciate it more. Uh, thank goodness for Google. The ancients didn't have that. Um, and there, there are so many places to start. I, again, speaking of Google, uh, just Google, if you, if you want to start with classic literature, just start with, you know, you know, 100 
best novels ever written. Um, everyone's list will be different, but you can you can start. There are lots of those kinds of lists um, or look in your local community to see when the symphony is coming, coming that the holiday season is a time when um, when those performances increase. Um, go to a museum um, and, and read up on these things. Don't expect that you're going to understand or appreciate much right away. Even when I pick up a novel for the first time, a classic novel I've never read before, I know I have a lot to learn about its, its context and its reception um, after I read it. Uh, so uh, just know that it, that it's going to challenge you and be up for the challenge and know that you will be a better person uh, for it. Um, and your, the life of the mind and the soul will be better for doing, taking in more than uh, mindless entertainment. Mindfulness. Uh, may, may, is another word we might need to redeem in this conversation because setting our minds on that which is a, which is above and setting our hearts on the things of Christ, there there is an intentionality that is required and it's not easy. It is there is work involved in cultivating the right appetites and if we don't put the right things in, the wrong things won't be pressed out. And so um, I think that, you know, what we're talking about here is exchanging that, the junk food that we're just accustomed to eating uh, in the culture today, actually intentionally replacing that with the kinds of uh, classic novels that you're talking about or cinema that's genuinely good, opera, I mean, these kinds of things that we would actually then begin learning to appreciate them. That's why there's courses in art appreciation, I suppose, and then actually desiring more of them as we cultivate an appetite for it. And then we'll be reproducing it in our own lives as well. And that would be a blessing uh, to many. Karen Swallow Pryor, thank you so very much. We, uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you as you continue to instruct us and, uh, and help us cultivate the right appetites today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. Okay, um, so it's Thoughtful Thursday, or as one of you has suggested, Theology Thursday. Um, thanks for joining me. We've got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.